from the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, this is In Conversation With, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, presented by Stuart Alford and produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another edition of our In Conversation With podcast. So we've got a different format this time. We've got multiple guests. We've got a great Chamber Chief's quickfire question session. Don't worry, my guest's looking very worried. I'll tell her about that later. But that's a quickfire question and answer session with some of our guests, which has proved very, very funny. Today, I'm delighted to say that I am joined by Councillor Rebecca Smith from Plimstock Radford Ward, who is here predominantly to talk about the Violence Against Women and Girls Commission that she chairs, but also online, I'm joined by Matt Tiller. Come in, Matt. Hello. Oh, he's got a very professional setup, and you'll find out why in a minute. Matt is co-founder of the Jack Leslie campaign. Thank you both so much for joining and talking about your respective lives. Rebecca, you, as I said, a Conservative councillor for Plimstock Radford. You're a cabinet member for Strategic Planning Homes and Communities. And we'll talk about your work, but I want to know a little bit about you. You were born and raised in Plymouth, weren't you? I was, Plymouth lady. Plymouth lady. I literally grew up on Hill Park Crescent, which is the road that runs down from Green Yeah, the fire, fire station. station. Yeah, 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 I know. So yeah. I grew up slap bang in the city centre. That was where I grew up, spent the first 18 years of my life. Your parents still there, aren't they? My parents are still yeah. in the same house. How did I know that? I knew that. Well, I'm not stalking you, I promise. Not, that's fine. <laughs> I, I did actually have to go and live with them when I moved back to Plymouth. Maybe that's why. You were telling me just before we went live that you had a nerdy, as you put it, first job. Well, yeah, nerdy's probably been a bit unkind to myself. I ended up as a Saturday girl in Central Library, so it was my job to go and put the books back on the shelves in the good old days of the library where the box now sits. So, yeah, it was kind of fun. I didn't get paid very much, and my brother got employed a couple of years later on a different contract and earned more money than me, which I used to find incredibly very boring. Unfair. But I kind of Was really that a gender thing or a time no, moved on, different job? Devon County Council versus Plymouth City Council thing, I think. So ah, I was going to say, that's yeah. not where it all started, no. a sudden sort of <laughs> urge to put the no, water right. No, I was not a feminist in those days. So, <laughs> And you said you learned a particular system. Yeah, so anyone listening to this is going to find this little bit unenlightening, I'm sure. No, but, I'm interested. Well, basically, there's a system for filing books in a library, because how do you stack hundreds of thousands of books and it was called the Dewey Decimal System and it's kind of gone a bit out of fashion now so the libraries don't really use it. Don't do this now because I can't remember. But in those days if you'd given me a three digit number and a decimal point and two other numbers I probably could have A told you where you'd find them and B told you roughly what the subject was. So I think I've had a missed career. I should have been a librarian. Have you got like the world's most organised house? No. No. I was going to say it's everything marked with three digits or something. I don't have a labelling machine or anything. Matt do you remember the Dewey Decimal System? Of course I do. I remember going to Plymouth Library, probably before Rebecca was working there, sadly, and going taking books out. I mean, I didn't know the system, but I knew you had to look for those complicated numbers. Yeah, uh, But I love libraries, yeah, and what's there now, the box. And the days where you get a little sheet in the front that got a stamp with a date to return by. Oh, yeah, so I got promoted and, and, and eventually got to do the stamping. Oh, you know, when you're 17, that is career. about as cool as it gets, if, if you're a nerd who likes libraries. Yeah. So. I read you come from a small business household. What does that mean? And does that make you a supporter of local business? Which, of course, I have to ask. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. It does make me a supporter of local business. So my dad trained as an architect and then decided that he didn't want to sit behind a desk for his life. And so went into construction, essentially started off doing 
general building work, carpentry things, and progressed on to having quite a successful kitchen business in the city, which my brother now runs instead. Dad's retired. And so I did grow up with a workshop in the back of the house and I kind of thought it was normal to have worktops stacked up the stairs waiting to go out for a job because it was quite a small business. But no, it was a big part of life. meant dad was working six days a week. So I get all of that pressure that you have where your whole life is your business Mm. and you wake up thinking about it in the morning and it means you fall asleep on the sofa at six (laughs) o'clock when you get home. But it means as a result, I think business in the city is incredibly important. And I've worked to support that the whole time I've been back here. And I'm a good little networker as well. So I (laughs) have got my dad and my brother quite a lot of work over the years, which they sometimes are thankful for. Well, afterwards, I'll talk to you about being a friend of the chamber. You can be a Uh, chamber champion. You can go out recruiting members for us. (laughs) And Matt, you're Plymouth boy, aren't you? Well, yeah, I wasn't born in Plymouth. My sister, who's older, was born in Plymouth. My dad was in the army in 2-9 Commando. So we moved to Plymouth when I was very small. I can't remember, two or three. So I grew up very much in Plymouth. And when my dad left the army, he bought a and b on the hoe. So my early life was not dissimilar to Rebecca's, that it was a family-run business and it was full-on and all-consuming for them, but also brilliant because we had people from all sorts of places coming in and out of the house. I think I was maybe about five or six when I ate my first pistachio nut, which in the 70s was... That was exotic. All we had back then was prawn cocktail and Black Forest Gatto, wasn't it? That was all. The next business was slightly bigger, but still small family-run hotel where you could buy a prawn cocktail and Black Forest (laughs) Gatto uh, (laughs) if you were to eat in the restaurant. But yeah, it was great because growing up on the hoe was a wonderful thing and meeting all those people who are kind of coming in and out of the city was remarkable, but it was very hard work for them. Yeah. Plymouth is a village, isn't it? I've got to tell our listeners, before we started recording, you two actually have a connection, don't you? You know Matt's sister? Yeah, so I don't know her super well, but I know her well enough to be connected on social media so Erica was involved in the Nancy Astor statue I met her through all the work that was done back in gosh 2018-2019 to get that statue put up on the hoe ahead of the 100 year anniversary of the first woman to be in parliament which is what's then significant about the Jack Leslie statue I guess in the yeah. fact that Jack well, was also a pioneer in the football world as well. Wasn't he ever and we're going to come back to Jack Leslie in a moment. I just want to cover the bit about why you've got such a professional setup that we can see there with mic and speakers and stuff is because you've got a background from Plymouth Sound haven't you? My first proper job I left Plymouth and went to university and then didn't really know what I wanted to do apart from perhaps working in the media and did some voluntary work at Radio Devon then did a postgrad at Falmouth where lots of journalists have started. And then my first proper job was at Plymouth Sound Radio in the mid-90s. And it was amazing. Fantastic first job, interviewing all sorts of people, covering local stories. And around the 97 elections, so I interviewed Tony Blair, which was quite an experience. And also covering Plymouth Argyle at a time when it was owned by Dan McCauley. You had Neil Warnock as the manager. It was legendary yeah, times. And, yeah, and yeah, you worked really, with the legend exciting. that was Gordon Sparks. Yeah, he Sparks was um, doing the breakfast show. And so I would some days be in reading the news into his show. And yeah, I worked there for about 18 months. And he was an absolute legend. He was lovely. I think he's a brilliant broadcaster because I then left Plymouth. I'd carry on listening to his commentaries of Plymouth Argyle. And it was a real sort of connection. And it wasn't just because it was, I probably would have listened to it anyway, but I thought he was brilliant. Such a talented, funny, 
brought those games to life incredibly. And yeah, most importantly, he was, he was just a lovely, lovely man. Yeah, really great. I bumped into him a few times at Argyle, or there was a Plymouth Sound reunion a few years ago. Just great to see him. He interviewed me a few times on Radio Devon, and not only did he make me feel completely at ease, he managed to, he probably shouldn't have BBC, but he managed to let me get a plug-in for the chamber. He drew it out of me. He was just so welcoming. I always thought, if he's going to interview me, oh, it's fine. I'll just sit there and he will make it fine. You know, just a lovely man. Rest in peace, Gordon. And what happened then? You went to the Big Bad City, didn't you? Yeah, well, I worked at 2-4 Productions, who were quite small when I was with them, but for some reason when I left, they got massive. And yeah, I went off to work in TV in London as a producer, director, making factual programmes and documentaries. But I was always into comedy. I'd always been trying to get into comedy. And then eventually a company called Channel X that used to be Jonathan Ross's company asked me to set up a company in Manchester. So I went there, ran that for quite a few years. I made a few shows. I made a a critically unacclaimed sitcom called Lunch Monkeys on BBC Three. Some people liked it. And then I made, it was fun. It was really fun to make. And then I did a show that was set in the Northeast called Heaven. Actually, I think I've just seen it. It's back on iPlayer at the moment. That's it. Which had Jim Moyer, that's Vic Reeves and Gina McKee, Chris Ramsey. And yeah, it was a really lovely family sitcom. Made that, not my own, lots of great people, a couple of series. And then moved back to London where I live and work now. Okay. And you've now got a podcast yourself. Is it called Foot in the Door? That's a blog. I did do a podcast, which is out there. Foot in the Door was a blog that I wrote. I've always been keen to help people get into the jobs that they want to. So I'm getting into the media. It was a mystery to me when I was in Plymouth and you didn't have the internet back then. I remember like writing, I think somewhere I've still got a stack of rejection letters from various people (laughs) I wrote to, including Plymouth Sound, although they eventually gave me a job and two four. I wrote to and badgered them. But I think it's when you haven't got those sort of connections, your parents don't work in the business, you don't have friends in any industry, it's really hard to know what to do. So I wrote a blog that's on my website with just various bits of advice, really. And I support a charity called Arts Emergency, because I think although it's easier to access the information these days, I think it's even harder than when I was growing up to in my mid 20s, I could move to London and not be earning a huge amount of money and get a room in a shared house somewhere fairly central and do the jobs that I'm doing that were paying okay but not great and it was a freelance lifestyle so it was very unpredictable these days you've got to save so much money for a deposit just to rent a flat it's just really tough yeah yeah so I bet you look back with a bit of fondness though don't you that sort of I say chaotic but difficult lifestyle or are you glad it's over it wasn't that yeah i mean it was good but i think it was much easier than it is seeing sort of people now having to you know make huge sacrifices to pursue a career or maybe making the choice not to because a lot of jobs in tv and radio are very unpredictable yeah and mine still is i've learned to live with it so does that give you a really thick skin all those rejection letters did you have to develop one you have to deal with it yeah i think it has over the years it makes you cherish the moments where you have some success because you can see how many failures have gone before. So I can deal with the rejection a little bit more easily now, perhaps. I don't take it personally. That's not to say it doesn't hurt because I'm still sort of pitching things all the time. Yeah, you get get a lot of knockbacks in this business. And Rebecca, I guess you've had to develop a thick skin being in politics, haven't you? Because, I mean, you've got the whether you're elected or not bit, but you've also got 
pretty vile personal attacks in politics, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, you don't go into it for that, for sure. But I can relate to what Matt's saying in terms of how you get into careers and the difference between the sort of 80s and 90s and what you'd experience now and I've got a similar backstory sorry to talk about that rather than how vile politics is to start with no, in no, terms of you know even that first job in the library I didn't get it straight away and I got written back to because again it was all writing letters and things yeah. but it is about that foot in the door and I did work experience in the House of Commons at 18 wow. that got me the juices going that I found that really interesting but then I ended up getting an internship and if I hadn't got that internship I wasn't in a position coming from Plymouth to have gone to London well, I actually went to Brussels and did my internship. I was anyway, say, you went but, to Brussels. So what was I did, that about? Well, I did this internship and the placement was in Brussels rather than London, which actually did me a favour because my parents didn't have a lot of money. So actually, I couldn't have afforded to be an intern in London at that right. point. But I could afford to do it in Brussels because the exchange rate was quite good at the time. <laughs> um, but then I did actually make it to London. But again, like Matt, did it in an era when the early 2000s where you maybe looked at three flats before you got one with your friends and it was affordable. And, you know, I was only earning... 24 grand but you could live in London on 24,000 in the early 2000s and yeah you can't do that now no no so, you cannot but hey so yes yeah, so politics it can be unpleasant but I just think it's like any career and profession isn't it you know you've got the good bits that are the kind of highs and then you've got the attacks in whatever form they take whether that's difficult customers or difficult patients or difficult bosses whatever it is you've mm. got to deal with that haven't you I suppose the difference with politics is you do have people that don't know you making personal attacks against you which well, I think doesn't tend to happen anywhere else but it's people that don't know me making a personal attack against me so therefore you just have to sort of say but they separate that, that they yeah, don't yeah. know me not, and it's ill-informed and it? I probably do quite a lot of talking out loud in the house <clears throat> to myself when I see some of the comments on Facebook but I don't lie awake at night losing sleep over them because I know that's not me I know that they don't know the do, whole story do you respond you don't do what Felicity Mercer does and sort of fire back some sort of pretty good roasts I have to yeah, say yeah no Felicity's particularly good at that I think she's in a different position because she's not the person that's elected, elected so I think so she's, she's using her position too. yeah in, she's in, a, got in a way that, that she can which actually does tell it like it is back to people you know you have to be able to do that don't you yeah interestingly I do respond sometimes but I don't respond to everything so it, actually if you start responding then people will say oh she hasn't responded to my yeah, post yeah, yeah. and it's like well I don't sit waiting reading Facebook comments but interestingly I'll tell you an interesting story so a couple of weeks ago I was getting tagged in a lot of posts that people were kind of unhappy yeah. with we won't talk about what it was about because that will age your podcast but I ended up responding to some of them and then I did a post saying I've seen this issue that's not how I understand it let me go away and find out what the situation is but later on right here are the facts and then a couple of days later here's some more facts and this is what I've done about it and will continue mm. to do. I engaged with a negative story and my social media stats went through the roof. So there's also that it's benefit as a politician yeah, yeah. of having that judgment of actually at what stage is it helpful to engage with this? And you just have to pick your battles and think it through. But ultimately, I've ended up with more people following me as a result of dealing with that situation and engaging with them on it. And so for me, I'm like, that was a bit of a tough evening that I spent figuring out what to say. But I'll the bet. benefit is 26,000 people saw my Facebook in a couple of weeks, which for a local politician is not good. that yeah, good. A, and I won a box of chocolates and, and a Southwest Councillor's <laughs> Social Media Award for it. So I'm now, as we joke, an award-winning councillor. You are an award-winning <laughs> councillor. I take things too personally. I think the older I get, I'm better at it. But I used to think I'd like to go into politics, but my brother said, you'd be bad at it because I take it personally. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. 
I'm not saying I'm like Teflon. Impervious. Or, no, no. No, it's not pleasant. This is not a kind of no. free reign to people. Hey, Rebecca's really tough too. <laughs> but you take the rough with the smooth, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I put a comment on Facebook. It was a supportive comment of Melissa Thorpe and the spaceport in Cornwall after the mission that didn't go as planned. And I got some pretty foul comments under that. And someone said, oh, there you go. Typical Tory mouthpiece backing it, everything to do with that. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm firstly apolitical in my job. And secondly, we're independent. And thirdly, what the heck's it got to do with politics? You know, I just found it bizarre. And I disengaged. And I thought that's why I can't do it, because I want to answer. What you're talking about there and social media attacks from people who are essentially anonymous, although not always sort of keyboard warriors and... I think it does feed into some of the things that we both do, Rebecca, in your work in terms of safeguarding women and my work with the Jack Leslie campaign in terms of calling out racism. Mm -hmm. I think we think that things have improved and yet all the time people are having to face sort of a barrage of abuse, particularly women and particularly black people, whether they're in the public eye or not. You know, you just look at what's happened to Troy Deeney. People are getting horrific abuse, you know, on a regular basis. Well, I think there are various answers to it, but the thing that it shows most clearly is that those issues have not gone away at all and they've been amplified in some cases. No, I think that's a really good way of explaining it, actually. You know, I think there are issues that have existed for a really long time, which is why we're still working on them today. Yeah. But actually, that amplification of social media, well, on the one hand, social media is hugely beneficial. I mean, statue campaigns, for example, thrive on them because yeah. it's how you get the message out there, isn't it? It's how you share information. Business thrives on it because it's how people share their new restaurant yeah. or the startup that they've got and people can get on board and start with it. So it's got its real strengths. And I love that about social media. Yeah. And I've made decisions on where I'm going to go or what things I'm going to do based on things I've seen on social yeah. media that kind of help make the world go around because you're supporting local businesses and things. But it has also sort of validated some people's ability to be able to share things that they may not have publicly said, except perhaps after a few drinks in the pub, on public forums where they exist forever. Well, <laughs> and it is quite startling, the stuff that you see in the echo chambers that people create for themselves without even realising that. Mm. I mean, I've got an echo chamber. I follow one thing we haven't talked I work for the Wargraves Commission. I, I see a whole lot that. of Wargraves on my social media. I follow some sport. I follow politics. I don't follow what Matt does because that's not what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. So in my world, that doesn't necessarily exist, but mm. it does exist. It's just I Well, don't that's see the it. problem, isn't it? I found in lockdown, the strength of British Chambers of Commerce really came to the fore because we were able to deliver direct support. We were able to give information straight from government. But I, at meetings regularly, said, let's just stop for a second and say, are we being an echo chamber? Am I just saying what I'm hearing from you and you're saying it because you hear it from me and we don't reach out? And I think social media and particularly Twitter, I think is the best of the internet and the worst of the internet but I always remember someone saying look for the helpers look for the nice people so whenever you see a disaster like the terrible thing that's gone on in Turkey with the earthquake that is awful but look at the number of people who are helping and take joy from that that there are people who make really positive supportive comments and that brings us on I guess to one of the reasons you're both here and remind me Rebecca I do want to come back to your work on the Wargraves Commission <laughs> and other stuff but I think we're getting to statue time so I'll start with you then Matt how did you hear about Jack Leslie and how did you get involved in the campaign? Jack Leslie's sort of always been in the record books at Plymouth Argyle, but I started going to Argyle in the 
mid 80s and as a young person the history of the club wasn't really talked about and i to my shame never really delved into it in any great detail so i was at a party in london and um, this guy's introduced me to his dad who's plymouth argyle fan great character tony fitzgerald and he started telling me the whole jack leslie and england story my first reaction was Surely not. That's mad. That can't have happened to a... Yeah, remind our listeners, if they haven't heard, what did happen to Jack Leslie? Because it's just horrendous. It is, yeah. In 1925, Jack Leslie was a Plymouth Argyle player from 1921 to 34. And in 1925, he was selected for England. So he was named in the papers. He was in a 30-man squad to travel to Belfast to play Ireland. And within weeks... His name had disappeared. His manager had called him into his office to give him the good news and say, Jack, you've been picked for England. It's a huge, huge honour. Yeah. Um, so he was blown away by this. And then he described this in an interview he did with the Daily Mail in 1978. So that's where we have his reflection on what happened to him. And he said that people couldn't look him in the eye and they couldn't tell him the reason. But he said, in his own words, the only reason is they must have found out the colour of his skin and his heritage. I mean, I think the story is, because I've done quite a lot of research, a lot more complicated than that. But that is the reason. Absolutely. There's no other reason. He was picked. He, he was, was named. deselected because he was black and he would have been yes. the first black England player. Absolutely. Yes. And as we know, that didn't happen. Full England cap until Viv Anderson in 1978, which prompted the interview with Jack because apparently I've talked in depth to Jack's granddaughters. Say it was a woman from Devon wrote to the Daily Mail after Viv Anderson was capped and said the first black player to be selected was our Jack Leslie. So it was nice that those Argyle fans remembered him. And I think a lot did and for many years felt the injustice because it's mentioned several times in Argyle yearbooks and things like that. Right. It's oft mentioned. Did he ever come to terms with it, do you think? Do you know from your research? Not that he should do. He has no right to come to terms with it. He shouldn't have to, but I mean... I think it's a very complex question because I think at the time, it seems to me that he kind of accepted it as that's just the way things are. I'm just going to have to move on. On the day that the England team played, he turned out for Plymouth Argyle, so he wasn't injured or anything. He scored two goals in a 7-2 victory. And actually, he went on from there and his career developed and his best years were from then until the early 30s when he became club captain and took Argyle to its highest league position ever. And in spite of what happened to him, he was still an incredible Argyle legend and pioneer. He played 400 times, 137 goals, almost certainly the first black captain of a football league side, which remarkable things in themselves. Yeah. But I think that later on, when you could sort of read that interview in the Daily Mail, it's really moving because you think he's seeing that Viv Anderson has been selected and maybe he's looking at that and thinking, I'm as good as him. In fact, he says that in the article. He says, you know, I'm not boasting because he wasn't a boastful guy, but I was good enough. And you're talking about sort of social media. We do and have had, as you can imagine, I mean, overwhelming support. Yeah. But you do get some negativity and people going, oh, that can't have happened. Well, I can tell you it did. If you go to the website, there's a fully researched article that tells the whole story with the newspaper clippings yeah the conversation will continue but first chamber chiefs quickfire questions hello there and welcome to the chamber chiefs quickfire questions section of our podcast where i fire rapid fire questions at members and guests they get two minutes to answer i have a fabulous buzzer 
to press if I think people are either waffling, taking too long, lying, bad answer, don't agree, or just because I can be rude and move on. So don't anyone be offended, guests. I'm really delighted to say that I'm now going to be joined by Lindsay Brown from Access for Lofts. Come in, Lindsay. Hello. Thank you so much for joining. You're very welcome. You say that now. Anything could happen. (laughs) So we may edit this bit out. But Lindsay is our first ever guest on the Quickfire Questions, and we haven't practiced this, so anything could happen. Lindsay, just before we start the two-minute Quickfire Questions, so Access for Lofts, go on, give us your elevator pitch. What's that about? Basically, we create amazing storage spaces in people's lofts. So we uh, put in a loft ladder, board it out, put in shelving, lighting, insulation, so that they can use all that space up in their loft for storage. And we franchised our business, so we now have... An number of franchisees around the country doing the, exactly the same thing. So some could say you have lofty ambitions? Very much so. You see what I did there? <laughs> Climbing the ladder of success? Yes. Yeah. Or are you, I haven't had any of these before. No, I bet you haven't. No. And are you bored, Neil, of my puns? Anyway, look, Lindsay, are you ready for this? Oh, I think so. <laughs> okay, your two minutes starts now chamber chiefs quick fire questions what year did you start 2005 where are you based plymouth what's your strap line <laughs> well creating space creating profit for the franchise business and creating space the easy way for the franchisees all nearly too long favorite country uh england oh good answer i haven't had to buzz you yet this is no good a person <laughs> you'd most like to meet oh dead or alive doesn't matter Freddie Mercury. Too late. Freddie Mercury, ah, did you say? Yeah. Oh, well, that was one of my things. Favourite band? Queen. Yeah, great, of course. Um, okay, so a few more personal questions now. Uh, how do you relax? Um, I sing barbershop with an acapella quartet. Who knew? Cat or dog? Dog. Of course. Wine or beer? Wine. Favourite grape? White. Oh, you're good <laughs> at this. Uh, what do you watch on TV? Uh, drama, Happy Valley, things like that. EastEnders or Corrie? None. I don't know why I pressed the buzzer because I agree. Uh, boat or plane? Plane. Sea or country? Sea. Partner star sign? Cancer. Your, your anniversary date? <laughs> June 4th. Oh, you, I nearly buzzed you then. Curry or pizza? <laughs> Curry. A best bond, Craig or Connery? Uh, Craig. Too slow. Oh, too slow. Oh. So, favourite book? <laughs> no, too slow. Favourite author? Uh, pass. No, uh, yeah, see, terrible. Uh, football or rugby? Uh, rugby. Uh, innie or outie? Innie. Did you say innie? Innie. Yeah, oh, good. That's all right then. Any tattoos? None. Oh, good. Uh, what fragrance do you wear? Um, it's called um... oh, no, no. too late too late suit or tie or jeans and t-shirt that's it time's <laughs> up time's up well oh man Lindsay we found out a lot about you there but unfortunately nothing too dodgy I was hoping no. there'd be something in there that we could kind of um, blackmail you for later you didn't but, really ask um... me any, any dodgy questions though well what should I have asked you <laughs> Now, I know that you know um, the owner of Fresh Air Studios, Paul, so I'll do a bit of digging and maybe we'll interview you again. (laughs) Okay, no problem at all. (laughs) Look, thanks for joining us. Bit of fun. Uh, We've learned a lot about you. Good luck uh, with Access for Lofts and um, appreciate you joining us on the show. 
Thank you very much for inviting me. Good luck. <laughs> Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. In Conversation With, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Now, back to the conversation. So how did the statue campaign come about? Having sort of heard the story and then looking into it to check it out, because there was some stuff available online and yeah, this really happened. I got chatting to all my Argyle supporting friends, one of whom, Greg Foxsmith, is chair of the London Supporters Association and he's sort of quite a campaigning lawyer and we just got together and he said, well, we've got to do something. Yeah, we should. So we decided that we were going to fundraise for a statue in 2019. Spoke to Argyle and Simon Hallett was really receptive and said, can you just hang on? We're going to name the boardroom after him. And of course, kind of fair, I've been in yeah, there. Fair enough. He didn't want it to look like he was responding to fan pressure because that wasn't the case. He'd come up with the idea independently and we weren't ready to launch anyway. So we said, yeah, yeah no, this is great what you're doing. It's great that you're on board. So early 2020, we set up our website, started to talk about what we we're going to do. And we were about to launch in April 2020 at an Argyle game when the Jack's granddaughters were going to be visiting as guests. And that was the first game to be postponed because of the pandemic. Oh. <laughs> so we put it all on ice. And then obviously what was going on with the murder of George Floyd, the Colson statue, people were looking, finding our website and seeing a positive campaign to erect yeah. a statue to someone who deserves it. And yeah. the BBC said, oh, we want to do this story nationally. And Greg and I were like, well, we're going to have to launch, aren't we? Yeah. In the middle of a pandemic. That causes you to we, launch. We can't not launch. So with some trepidation, but we thought we've got to do this. So we got all our ducks in a row and it was incredibly frantic. But the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic, that I had no work, Greg was on furlough. So it was Things a full-time for job. for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously it took off. How much did you have to raise? We did a bit of research on how much does it cost to build, build a statue. Because like, it's not something um, everybody knows. <laughs> no, not, and obviously it varies, but we thought we need at least 100,000. Yeah. We know that we can deliver a statue for that yeah. amount of money. So that was our target. And we managed to hit that in six weeks. And it was an incredible roller coaster. And lots of people came on board. It wasn't just me and Greg. We had Tony who told me the story. He was, and various other people joined us and supported us and spread the word. And yeah, we managed to get through that total and managed to get up to 140,000 because donations have continued to come in, which was great because it took a couple of years to plan the statue and we wanted to make it as good as it possibly could be. And I think we managed to achieve that. You did. It's great. And just before we move on from that, do I remember rightly that his granddaughters were there for the unveiling? They unveiled it, yeah. Leslie, Lynn and Jill. We didn't know them before... We set up the campaign. We'd obviously been trying. I remember sort of going through what, the online phone book, trying yeah. to find them. And eventually, through Argyle, managed to get in touch. And before we launched, and they were totally on board. I think at first they thought, well, this isn't going to happen. But as soon as it sort of started to take off, now we've met up many times in person. And it's really one of the things that has driven us on because they felt that injustice and the lack of recognition through the family for over a century and for that to be put right yeah it's had a huge impact and has been incredibly emotional 
I'll bet. You know, Matt, thank you so much for doing it. It was important that it was recognised, that story is told, that he is celebrated and, I suppose, commemorated. And on that, Rebecca, you've done work with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which also talks about recognition and commemoration. What got you involved with that? Well, so it's actually one of my day jobs. So I'm em- You've got a real I'm job. employed by them. I have two real jobs. I'm employed by them, so I go out and talk about the work of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission across the southwest. That essentially just means going and saying to people, this is who we are and this is what we do. And a lot of people do know something about the organisation, but actually be surprised how many people don't know anything about Mm. the work that we do. And we actually commemorate 1.7 million Commonwealth casualties around the world. And by Commonwealth, that therefore means that they're not all white British soldiers you know yeah. there's a real range of men and women different nationalities that we commemorate and a large number of those are commemorated here in Plymouth and across Devon as well so it's actually a real privilege to be able to go out and share some of those stories and you have odd days where you're going to do something because work have asked you to mark a particular date and I have a little look on our database just to say I wonder if there's anyone in Plymouth that that was their date of death that I could go and talk about and then mm. you'll find that there was somebody and mm. you can go and mark 80 years since this unknown or little known soldier or sailor gave their life in either the first or the second world war so it's a really interesting job and it's a really nice way of connecting with people as well because Mm. people are really interested in their family history they're really interested in our military connections here in devon and to have an opportunity to go out and meet people who are passionate about that has been really lovely and i've been doing it for five years now so i can do my talks in my sleep well it's (laughs) important that we don't forget and you do a lot of other stuff aren't you school governor charity trustee actually i'm not a school governor and a charity trustee anymore i've had to stop doing that because work has got a lot bigger and i haven't had enough time but i'm really involved in local politics obviously and that means you get involved with the local party as well so i do quite a lot of stuff across devon because you've got a lot of spare time now not a huge amount but i'm the sort of person i expect matt's probably the same and i'm sure you are too stuart busy people you've always find time to do other things but sometimes you have to take a refresh don't you and i have divested myself of a couple of things in the last few years i did when i got this job i knew i couldn't do it all so but i I do think actually being a school governor is really important for example and i did that in all saints academy in plymouth when i first came here i'd spent a long time in london working with a primary school in victoria for about Mm. six years and thought actually i'd quite like to go and do this in a secondary school and it's probably similar to matt when you do the sorts of careers we do where a lot of it is about connections and networking and you're not necessarily directly employed by a big corporation who invest in you and give you loads of training sometimes doing these additional things like working on a statue or being a school governor or a trustee or something they build your skill set in a kind of organic way that a job might not provide you so that's sort of why i did it how do i invest in myself and my future while i volunteered basically yeah you know i'd actually written down i was chair of st luke's hospice for seven years and a trustee for 10 and when i stood down because my tenure was up they were thanking me and i said i should thank you i got far more out of it i always feel than i ever put in i mean you get so much you meet so many people you learn so much it gives you totally new viewpoint i suppose and it's really important stuff i mean i particularly so one of the key things you need in politics is resilience and it was through some of the volunteering that I did. So not necessarily through work, but when I lived in London, the volunteering I did, where I was a school governor at a particularly difficult time in this school with a particularly difficult head teacher, <laughs> that I had that experience of, oh, this is a new situation. But it then meant when I was looking to apply to go into politics, 
and they ask you for specific examples about resilience that volunteering provided that example which work hadn't because my job was actually quite nice (laughs) but you know that scenario and how I dealt with it was really useful so I know lots of your members do a huge amount of volunteering and I think it's always worth saying how valuable that is the commission have hundreds of volunteers and we need them and they love working for us and I think literally Plymouth and the surrounding area wouldn't survive without volunteers so I think a big thank you to people who do volunteer because it's not invisible it is seen and it does make the world go round. It definitely does I hope I get the statistic right I think for every employee of St Luke's Hospice, there's five volunteers and it couldn't survive without them. So well said. And speaking of commissions, you chair the Violence Against Women and Girls Commission in Plymouth, which was set up after the tragic murder of Bobby Ann McLeod, a terrible day for Plymouth. I know a few of the commission members, including our own Claire Baker from our membership experience manager at the chamber and Carolyn Giles, who's a former director of the chamber. What did the commission do? How did you get involved? And is it still doing it? (laughs) As you said, the commission was set up on the back of the tragic murder of Bobby Ann McLeod and that had come not that many months after the Keyham shooting as well so across the city there was a palpable sense particularly amongst women and girls of being a bit fearful not sure how safe they were out and about living their lives across the city and so the commission was set up to look at what more we might want to do and whether there was an issue and what the issues were and how we might tackle those and it also gave us an opportunity to highlight what was already happening in the city because actually Plymouth has some really pioneering work through organisations like Trevi and Ahimsa, you know, nationally known organisations that are part of the big violence against women and girls world. So the VOG, V-A-W-G, the VOG world is actually incredibly broad and we found that really quickly Mm. with the commission you know you've got the dealing with the everyday feelings of women who want to live their life in a society where social media and things tell them that they're not safe still but also you've got people who are victims themselves and are experiencing domestic abuse and domestic violence on a daily basis and you have to sort of deal with all of those issues so that all women felt like they were involved and got something out of it. So we had a really big remit really to look at what was going on in the city already and what we could recommend to help things be even better and to challenge some of the culture that is evident across the entire country but what could we do in Plymouth to make that step change and to see future generations not experiencing the things that previous generations and current generations Mm. might be. And so what did it discover? What are the findings? What can we take forward from it? Well, I would recommend anybody goes and checks out our report because we yeah. had a... And f- it's not long and it's weighty. Not long, I, I no. have genuinely yeah, read it. Yeah, it's, it's about an hour's read probably. But in that hour, you will find out what the national context is, what the local context is. You will find out what our findings were. So we took 40 hours of evidence orally. That was a huge feat. All of this was done over teams in a sort of coming out of the pandemic, going back yeah. into the pandemic era. And we also took written evidence. We did surveys and things. And we found that there were good things going on across the city, but we saw that there was room to do more in education. How do we equip younger generations to be different? How do we ensure we make our systems work for victims so how do we help women and girls to be able to report things more easily to feel listened to to make sure that anything is joined up across the city how do we make our streets safer Plymouth actually has very safe streets we get a huge amount of funding from the government to help with that this winter we've had the night bus we've put help points in across the city Mm. as a result of the commission but what more could we do and are there ways that transport could work with 
the police or the council. So the commission is sat within Plymouth City Council's website, but it's Plymouth's commission. So the council provided the secretariat. Someone at the end of the day has to write the report. Um, And we had an incredibly skilled set of people to the extent that when I read the report, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like the sort of report you read in Westminster if you're working for a think tank. You know, it's that level of work that got done as a result of the volunteers who served on our commission and the staff. So it's plymouth.gov.uk forward slash V-A-W-G. All the work is there updated. We've now got a strategic lead in the city. To yeah, take Megan Field. Forward. Megan Field, she's yeah. fantastic. She's got 25 years worth of experience setting up different organisations, looking at domestic abuse and housing association properties, things like that. She's done some really great stuff. So you asked what's happening with the commission. Now, the commission is finished. So we finished when we reported last mm-hmm. May. But once the chair, always the chair. So I still get to speak and talk and have held that position of keeping the pressure on and keeping the foot on the pedal going forward. And that will get taken forward across the coming years, I believe. I think we've seen some recommendations delivered already. Had a great speech. Yeah, it's come out with practical recommendations. Yeah. And I think some of it, didn't some of it receive national attention as good practice that could be shared more widely? Yeah, so one of the recommendations, it's a bit of a cheeky one in a sense, was to say we want to share what we've done because we think this is a good story we've Mm. tackled this issue and so we set our MPs the challenge of raising it in Westminster so back at the end of January we had a speech in Westminster Hall which is like a side debating room in Parliament which Sir Gary Streeter led that Mm. just debating what we've done and allowing other MPs from across the political spectrum to talk about what they're aware of and doing and I think it raised the profile at least one MP spoke to me afterwards and said I want to do this in my constituency. Right. Kind of, can you help? Did it's, it receive cross-party support? It did, yeah. So yeah, it's good. not; it doesn't have a vote. It's just a debate. But, but I mean, yeah, you people were like Jess Phillips spoke on it as well. Yeah. So there was a real interest in what we were doing, and it's really interesting with this work on a day-to-day basis. You don't see change happening that quickly, but it's going to be one of these things. I really believe, where in twenty years' time we look back and we can see that change but it's going to take commitment and belief and a working together of men and women across the city to deliver this i heard you speak and you articulated very well i thought the sort of sentiment of in years gone by drink driving was socially acceptable now you wouldn't dream of letting a friend get in a car after a few drinks you'd have their keys off them and in the same way language and behavior towards women in the street for example which has traditionally been seen as oh it's just a builder's wolf whistle of it now friends you want them to challenge it such that you say this isn't appropriate anymore it's not acceptable and to have that same sea change of culture yeah absolutely and i think that's why i keep saying this is a 30-year project because Mm -hmm. that drink driving legislation led to that change Mm. now the advantage the violence against women and girls piece has is a lot of the legislation is already there but we could make it better And I think that's what politicians at a Westminster level need to be looking at. How do we tighten it up? How do we make it even better? But that legislation exists now, which means it is the culture change that needs to come now. And it is that behaviour that needs to be challenged. And so thinking about my business listeners, what can they do 
if you just gave them one or two things now that they take away from this, what can they do to help fight violence against women and girls? Again, just another plug, go back to the report because there are things specifically in that that relate to employers and businesses. What I would say is it's been great. A number of your businesses related to the Chamber already have signed the pledge that we put out when we launched the report. We pulled out the recommendations that specifically related to employers and said, will you pledge to work on these? And Mm. I think it's over 50 organisations across the city signed up to that so which is great but not enough we need more what we would suggest is things like looking at your employment practices do you have policies in place is it a safe place if someone's experiencing domestic abuse or domestic Hmm. violence at home is work safe for them because at the end of the day we spend most of our time at work work should be somewhere that people feel able to share at the right time get support if your business directly relates to a field like transport we're looking to work with sports clubs you know organizations where they either provide a service that you want to make sure is safe for women or organizations where there's a majority male workforce what could you do to engage your employees to get involved because i think to make this work it's got to be something that we all get on board with. It's not something exactly. we do to people. We've got to get them to understand it. People are going to want to change exactly. it, understand it, and buy into the whole thing. Otherwise, Quite. you're just preaching at them. Yeah, and I think... When you hear the stories and when you hear what needs to change, it's quite compelling. So another suggestion would be get someone like me in to come and talk to your senior leaders to say, Mm. why do we need to do this? Get Megan in to have those conversations. I think like anything, sticking your hand up and saying I'm in is the first step. And then if they say I'm in, literally the seas will part and we will be like, great, let's work with you on how we can help you. We're looking interestingly as well at developing a charter mark. So organisations will be able to have a mark that they sign up to that implies that they are committed to tackling violence against Mm. women and girls and they will be expected to show that too (laughs) and we brainstormed that workshop that at our conference in November again lots of businesses were there and we really valued that involvement and that is going to be launched later on this year so watch out for that as well because that will be a really great way to get involved definitely and the chamber will completely support that we sadly had a member of staff who was subject to a horrendous assault awful domestic violence and we i hope did all we could to support and put in various physical security measures attack alarms you name it we tried to do everything and i still think about that and we want to do everything we can to support so if you need our help businesses are out there we want help and what i'm really glad is that it's not preachy but let's talk about it and i think actually i could make a little plug plug away a lot of this will work if we've got funding to help it happen as well and the council's committed to that we can get government funding we've got quite a lot of that in the past but things like conferences and events those sorts of things why spend money on those when we could be spending money on delivering services so i think if businesses want to get on board in the future with supporting some of the outworkings of the commission then Mm. they'd be really welcome to and we had that support at the conference in november so i think there's always ways for businesses to sponsor and show their support that way as well Brilliant. Thank you. And Matt, is the work of the Jack Lizzie Statue campaign continuing or is there a legacy you want to leave from it? It does continue and there's very much a legacy and a following on from Rebecca's incredible work. I think it's really important to listen to those people who have experienced in the Jack Leslie campaign's case, have experienced racism. And that's why we talk to a lot of former footballers who've been involved in the campaign, people like Ronnie Moje, who will talk honestly and I've never had to experience 
racism. So I'm not the person to talk about it. I can tell Jack Leslie's story and you can see through that the impact of it. But I think education is incredibly important and in the same way it is for tackling violence against women. It's listening to the people who've had to deal with it and then trying to affect some change to improve conditions. We only have to look at what's gone on in the Met Police and I'm sure it's gone on in dressing rooms of sports clubs for years and years, you know, that kind of supposed banter and jokes. And then if you actually ask them why that joke is funny, you soon find out that it's not funny. Mm. It's pretty poor. So that's a starting point. But yeah, for the Jack Leslie campaign, we continue to tell the story in football clubs. Greg and I do talks before games in schools. We've talked to several schools in Plymouth and elsewhere and organisations. So if any business or organisation listening to this wants us to come and tell Jack's story, then we're always happy to do that. And people can still donate as well if they'd like to support us in that. It's jacklesley.co.uk is the website. And you can just find out loads of information about Jack's story for starters, which is a fascinating story in its own right. And at the moment, I'll have another plug. It's coming out in October, late October this year. I'm writing a biography of Jack Leslie, which is fascinating because going through all the old sort of local papers and just adding to the story and also finding out what a fascinating man he was and incredible player as well. Is there much in the archives in Plymouth that you've used? Have you used the box as part of your research? on Jack Leslie or is it more kind of club archive and national things that you've gone to? It's more club and national because actually in the national archives there's a lot of local of so course, I've been yeah. actually in the British Library I've been going through old copies of the Football Herald which is the football version of the okay, Evening Herald yeah. back in the 20s and 30s and they've got the original copies which is amazing sort of That's turning so good, those yeah. pages and finding little snippets not just finding snippets about the England story also things like you get questions and comments which you know I can get a bit chippy about because I know the story so well but are the sort of questions I asked in the first place like well why wasn't Jack Leslie playing for a bigger club for example well the reason for that is that players didn't have the same power that they do now and the manager at the time wouldn't let him leave um, <laughs> and the granddaughters told me that story and said other clubs came in for him but you see in the Football Herald many many references to an approach from a bigger club and Bob Jack, the manager at the time, turning them away. And actually, in that Daily Mail article of 1978, Jack tells, why did he come to Plymouth? Well, Spurs, Chelsea and West Ham wanted to sign him, but Argyle offered him 10 shillings a week more. <laughs> Can you believe simple. it? 10 yeah. shillings. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. get slightly more than that now, I think. <laughs> well, Guys, slightly we, more. we started off talking about libraries. We've come back to libraries. I have literally only asked half the questions I wanted to, but we've massively run out of time. I'm so sorry, because I could talk to you guys for hours now. You've both done amazing work. You're doing great stuff in your respective fields. So I hope we'll have a huge legacy. And I could just say thank you so much for giving up your time. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. You, Rebecca. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's good. In Conversation With is supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, a personal and local service that values relationships above all else. Westcott's, we're here. Produced by Fresh Air Studios, full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. <laughs>